Now, what price the defence of our nation? That sounds like a cliche, I realise, but during the past week especially, it's been a real dilemma forced into our lives to consider due to the big AUKUS agreement on submarines. As you undoubtedly know, it's provoked a startling level of discussion, helped along by the sheer scale of the Biden-Sunak-Albanese interactions, by the money being discussed, and by a certain ex-Prime Minister delivering a vintage performance. The first opinion polls suggest the bulk of Australians support the basic idea of nuclear power subs due to their fears about change threats in our region, and they agree that spending on defence might have to rise. Beyond that, there was arguably a lot of confusion about detail, about timelines, about how we'll debate this mammoth venture in years to come. So there's a lot still to come, and I fully see that, and I'll quote some of the many contributors already um, uh, having their say. But let's now tap the views of two respected commentators in this space, Professor Hugh White and Professor James Curran. Welcome to you both. Good morning, Geraldine. Um, I'm going to ask you both, and I want to just sort of get a, a a set up response. What do you both consider to be the strengths and the weaknesses of these announcements? First to you, James Curran. Oh, well, look, I think, I mean, if if you're looking for the strengths, obviously the announcement from 18 months ago by the Morrison government uh, has come to fruition. I mean, they have managed to get uh, the fact that uh, some US submarines will home port in Western Australia Mm. Uh, the, the government is using that as the argument that they are filling the capability gap and that that gap will be further filled by the acquisition of three Virginia-class submarines from the United States early in the next decade. Um, however, I think the weaknesses at this point far outweigh any of the strengths, to be quite honest. I think we're seeing now really the rubber hit the road in terms of the sheer lack of preparation that this, both governments, Morrison and Albanese governments, did in terms of preparing the public Uh, for how this vast whole-of-nation enterprise is going to work, the costs, the potential for pitfalls, delays, cost blowouts, I think, are legion. And we may well be looking at a situation where the announcement in San Diego this week, uh, with the Prime Minister wearing his aviator sunglasses afterwards, might be just about as good as it gets for the Albanese government, um, because I suspect that the problems that we face down the road and the pitfalls that this, this project may well fall into... Um, are going to be very significant. And I don't think, as I said, I think the most devastating point that Paul Keating made during the week was that the Labor opposition were given about 12 hours to decide on this. They took four hours to decide on a policy. And I wonder what's happened to the rigour in the public policymaking process in Australia. Okay, uh, Hugh White, we just had trouble getting on to you. I don't know whether you heard. What do you consider the strengths and the weaknesses of these announcements thus far? Well, I don't see many strengths, Geraldine, but I think there are a lot of weaknesses. I guess the first point I'd make is that, unlike a lot of other people in this conversation, I I don't think that nuclear-powered submarines are actually the right capability choice for Australia. Um, I do think that's, uh, uh, you know, I do think that's something which has sort of escaped people's attention. Uh, Nuclear-powered submarines have real advantages but they also have real disadvantages, including the cost and risk and complexity and safety issues involved in acquiring them. And I think uh, I, don't, I don't think the, uh, the, the benefits outweigh the costs. So that's my first point. The second point, I think, is that um, uh, uh, by acquiring these submarines uh, in this way, I think we are locking ourselves much more closely into US grand strategy against China. 
yes. over the decades to come. And I think that's a, 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 a mistaken thing to do because I don't think uh, US grand strategy is heading in a very smart direction. And the third point, and this is picking up on some of the points I think James was just making, is that there are huge risks and uncertainties in the program as it was outlined uh, last Tuesday morning. And I think the chances of that falling over and us ending up with no submarine capability at all is very high. Now, interestingly, neither of you mentioned under preparation. Um, where are we now, uh, Hugh White? Uh, we're, we're hardly... We're hardly adequately prepared, are we? Oh, well, absolutely not. And I mean, I think, you know, this, this, this goes to a very fundamental point about the way in which our whole defence and foreign policy debate has gone over the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, I mean, when Scott Morrison uh, came out uh, uh, in 2020 and declared that Australia faced the most uh, serious strategic circumstances since the Second World War, he, he made out as if this was, this was a result of something that happened in the last few months. In fact, uh, China's growing challenge to the United States' dominant position in the Western Pacific, which we have regarded, I think, correctly as the foundation for our security for decades, that challenge has been growing manifestly for about 20 years and very, very obviously for the last 10. And yet for most of that time, uh, our political leaders on both sides of politics have just been saying we don't have to choose between America and China on the assumption that somehow that, that, that rivalry between them would go away. So I think we've been very slow to understand uh, how the strategic circumstances are changing and to recognise what needs to be done in our own uh, defence and foreign policy posture to, to adapt to it. And one result of that, amongst others, is that we've been really inexcusably slow to grasp the nettles involved in replacing the Collins-class submarines. I think submarines are an important capability for us. And, um, uh, you know, we, we, we have got to the point where the Collins are very close to the end of their life. And uh, as people have often pointed out, we've had repeated attempts to get a program in place to replace them. Uh, they keep on falling over. And now our latest version, the version that was announced on Tuesday, is unbelievably complicated and full of risks. And I think, as I said before, is very likely to fail. Um does it mean, I'm just going to go through sort of key things that I think prompt further conversation. Does it mean that we have changed the whole philosophy that has been our philosophy of late, of, of defence of Australia, reverting to an older one, which was for defence? Let me read a contribution yesterday from one of our most respected now retired diplomats, Peter Varghese. Um, uh, it the decision, I'll just not find it because I've got things everywhere, that uh, basically we, are, we basic, are we changing our minds about um, forward defence? If we are, now I can't find it, so I'll have to, uh, I'll have to paraphrase. Uh, are we basically, yes, sorry, there are strategic costs to weakening the discipline behind the Defence of Australia doctrine, if that is where we're heading. It takes us further away from the long-standing objective of being able to defend Australia by harnessing the US alliance, but without relying on the combat assistance of the US. I don't pretend to know the answers to these questions, but I would have thought that before we took decisions as momentous as AUKUS, there would be a proper and forensic public discussion about other options and their underlying rationale. Now, James Curran, what's your reaction to that? 
Oh, look, I think Varghese is right. I mean, uh, when you've got a defence minister who, <clears throat> right from the moment he's taken on the portfolio, has started to use this language of interchangeability of Australian and US forces, um, you know, it, it used to be the sort of deep integration, it used to be interoperability, it's now interchangeability. <clears throat> um, and when you hear Defence Minister Richard Miles talk about impactful projection, it is forward defence by another name. But I does mean, that, that matter? Does that matter? That's the question. Well, it's the question. I mean, this question has been raised by some commentators. Is this the kind of country that Australia wants to be to have this kind of capability, if we ever get it, lining up off the Chinese coast, right? Now, is that the best use of a deterrent? No one, very few people will say that a country doesn't need a deterrent, but why precisely do they need this one? I mean, Hugh White's been arguing for years that we could have afforded a lot more submarines and have them dotted around the Australian subs. coast. Conventional subs. Conventional to, to dot around the Australian coastline and protect us that way. But this sort of this impactful projection, um, uh, never mind that it sounds as if some defence planner somewhere has swallowed a dictionary, um, it is the sort of plucking of an older strategic impulse uh, in the Australian strategic imagination. And I just want to pick up something that but Hugh maybe said it's right. Before. I mean, maybe it's accurate. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. This, of course, depends on a, on a lot of hypotheticals. But I would have thought the first responsibility for any government is to maintain the control over what you can do and to maintain your sovereignty. Now. I think to pick up on something Hugh said before about us tying into grand strategy, US grand strategy in Asia, you know, what we are seeing here for the, from the United States perspective as well is that they have now got what they have wanted since 1951. And that is they've got Australia to share the political responsibility for the defence of Taiwan. John Foster Dulles tried to get it. John F. Kennedy tried to get it. And now the Biden administration has got it. And so, you know, strategic ambiguity has been, it was long ago tossed overboard. I think, by, by Kim Beasley in 2006. And it's a Labor government now that's finally given it its death knell, I think, through, this, through is, this policy. But this is much more than about Taiwan, though, this particular... The, these discussions are, are far broader than that, surely. Look, I think they are, but that is, that, is where, that is where the crunch comes. That is where so much of the talk has been in terms of the China threat narrative that has been developed in this country over the last six years. It all comes down to what Australia would do in the event of a Sino-military, Sino-US military conflict over Taiwan. So I think, I mean, I think, you know, that it's not the elephant in the room anymore. I mean, it, it, it's, the, it's the crunch point at which our capabilities and our uh, commitment to the US alliance come, come together. Look, to, uh, can, OK, I want to go to, to Hugh White. I mean, we have got a Defence Force review, a major review that has already been handed to the government, uh, Hugh, and we'll probably see some release of it in the next little while. So, I mean, that's to prompt big public discussion, isn't it? That argument that Peter Vagy says we haven't had a public discussion. That is still to come. Is that how you see it? Uh, n no, I don't think so, Geraldine. I think the uh, I think the, the defence strategic review is designed to give the answers um, and you know to establish the government's new policy. I mean, I think just going back to that broader point you were raising, the the, the problem we face is that the way in which we made that choice to opt for self-reliance in the defence of Australia, the big policy mm. dimension that began in Australia after the end of the Vietnam War, was was in the context in which there was no great power rivalry going on in Asia. Uh, American primacy after Vietnam, after the opening to China in 1972, American primacy in East Asia was uncontested. And our whole way of thinking about our defence situation, our foreign policy situation 
in uh, East Asia and the Western Pacific has been framed around the fact that no great power was trying to knock America off. Now, that's what's changed. And I think what we need to do is to not keep going back to the old debate we had in the 70s and 80s about between forward defence and defence of Australia, because that's been overtaken. I think we're, we now face a new situation. And the choice we have to make is whether or not it's smart for us to respond to China's rise by supporting the United States in its ambition to defeat China's challenge and preserve US primacy. Now, mm. I wouldn't for a moment say that US primacy is not a a better outcome for Australia. But I don't think that's going to work because I think China is just too powerful. I mean, the big difference between today and the, every previous year in Australian foreign policy is that we, we face in China an Asian power that is more powerful in our region than the United States is. And my worry about the whole strategy, of which I think AUKUS is an integral part, is it embeds Australia in an approach to China which is whether we like it or not, simply not going to work. So what and do that, so that's, that's, right? And but the essence. But you're not inviting a chorus of despair. You think that we can equip ourselves to deal with that prospect? Do you? I uh, well, yes. I mean, I'm very worried because I think uh, present U.S. policy towards China, and I might say present Chinese policy towards the United States. It takes two to tango. Uh, it makes the risk of a conflict between them very serious. As James said, Taiwan is the likely flashpoint, but uh, if there's a war between America and China over Taiwan, it won't really be about Taiwan any more than the First World War was about the assassination of the poor old Archduke. It's about the fundamental distribution mm. of mm. power. Now, I think, for, but I do think that there is a way forward for Australia. I mean, we have to reimagine ourselves. We have to think what it would be like for us to live really for the first time since European settlement in 1788 in an Asia which is not dominated and made safe for us by our Anglo-Saxon mates. I mean, we had Britain until, pick a date, 1941. We had America since then. But, but the rise of China is a truly historic change in the way in which Asia works. And we still have to rethink our way through what, how, how we work our way forward in that kind of Asia. Our problem is, the reason I dis, dis, despair of AUKUS, is that AUKUS is a great big demonstration of the fact that we're still trying to frame our position in Asia through supporting American dominance. Actually, and that's just, just uh, not going to work. Well, let's just listen to um, Peter Jennings, who made a comment this week. He's a former executive director of ASPE and how he's thinking about the times to come. Ten years of successful service uh, with the Virginia class, that's what we need. Um, the Americans are going to continue to uh, build this boat. They're going to update the design and, and modernise it as we go through. Why wouldn't we stick with success? I, I, I guess the, the, the quick answer to that is the British want to deal themselves into this game somehow. But I wouldn't be surprised if that part of the plan is going to come under even closer scrutiny and if we can make things work well with the Virginia class, why not stick with success? I, mm. I agree with you. This is a discussion we'll be having for years to come. So, James Curran, I mean, this is clearly, well, the implication is it's fluid. Um, and one of our texts said, can we walk this back? Now, well, let's put it another way. Is this fixed? I mean, how do you read this? I don't think it's fixed at all. There, there are so many imponderables in this going forward. I mean, first of all, even those three uh, Virginia-class submarines we're meant to be getting early next decade 
require congressional approval. Now, as Hugh mentioned, I mean, the way in which the US-China debate is going, the bipartisan consensus in Washington, uh, where, the, where, where China hawks across both parties are, are rampant, um, where the United States is already having significant problems of its own in keeping up its production of the Virginia class. And in fact, they're moving beyond the Virginia class anyway. They're now developing their next class of submarines. So the, 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 the submarines we get from the United States, the Virginias, will be secondhand. They will be refitted so that the US Navy can still utilise them. They will be an addition, in essence, to the US Indo-Pacific fleet. Uh, we already know there are question marks, despite the protestations to the contrary from cabinet ministers about operational control. Um, so we're now talking about funding a third US production line in the United States to the cost of three to four billion. That'll be a difficult sell, I think, in, in the Australian electorate. We're talking about sending workers over there to do the night shift. And then we've got then we've got the the issue of of the British and the way in which we are. I mean, and again, this goes back to Hugh's point. I mean, this country, in, you know, with, when east of Suez and west of Hawaii came together in the 1970s, that is, once the US and the UK in, in that period um, were clear that they could not offer Australia a future in terms of our security, that then prompted the kind of spark to create the defence of Australia and Australia then embarked on a new policy of uh, comprehensive engagement with Asia. But now we're going back to sort of massage a post-Brexit global Britain fantasy well, and, you know, and, and there are significant questions about the kind of economic health of, of Britain. Malcolm Turnbull raised these in the last couple of days. Uh, that, is, that, is, that is a huge, I think, um, unknown about whether Britain will have the kind of economic uh, strength to be able to keep going with this and let alone this is a brand new boat. The SSN AUKUS, this is the phase three that we get after the Virginias, is a brand new boat. It hasn't been designed and anybody knows in the history of defence procurement that these things are inevitably okay. beset now, by all sorts of problems. So, yeah. so Mr Jennings is very, is very optimistic, I think. And now can I just, can I go down to that question of self-reliance then, which I mean <laughs> with you, Hugh White, um, because James has sort of gone into that area, self-reliance and independent sovereignty. And, and what is self-reliance anyway? I mean, you know, people always refer and I was thought that James might, Curtin's great act during World War II to call the troops back, you know, stared Churchill down, called the troops back to Australia and PNG. But then he had to turn instantly to the US, didn't he? And we effectively came under the rule, really, of General MacArthur. So, I mean, it again raises questions. <laughs> whether, he turned back to the UK. Um, whether we... Um, whether we ever really control our fate, Hugh White... Well, I think we've got to be very conscious of the fact that no no country in the world is a complete master of its destiny. You know, the world is a much more complicated international system than that. But the question for Australia is, um, is it possible for us to contemplate making our way in Asia in, on the basis of both of our diplomacy and of our military capability without depending on the intimate support of a great and powerful friend like uh, Britain or America, which is what we've always done in the past. Now, traditionally, Australians have convinced themselves that Australia simply cannot defend itself independently. Um, and that's still a widely shared view. I, I, I think that's wrong. I think if Australia thinks very carefully about what exactly we need to be able to do to defend ourselves, it thinks very carefully about what kinds of military operations that entails and are very stringent about buying exactly the right kind of equipment to, to achieve those, those, um, those operations, then I think we can. I 
you'll forgive the ad, I wrote a book about this a, a few years ago called How to Defend Australia, which, which focused precisely on that question. And my argument was that if we spent something like 3% of GDP on defence... Three. And, didn't, and we're, and now, didn't we're just under two we're now. now. We're now spending two, so it's a significant cost. But if, what's more, if you don't spend that money on stupid things like nuclear-powered submarines and a whole lot of other stupid things we're buying, then I think we've got a pretty fair chance. So I don't think we need to frame our whole approach to the, to the future Asia that we're, that we're heading into on the basis that we simply can't survive unless we hang on to America's coattails. It's just that, that people re- haven't taken up. I mean, you know, you'd think that was an attractive prospect, but it hasn't been taken up by the people, by the planners. Uh, you've been saying this for quite a while and by the people who've got to serve on these things. So clearly there's a great ambivalence as to whether we really can do this uh, and particularly with changed circumstances, whether it is even wise to imagine this. Well, I think, um, put it this way, if the choice is between trying to to build the capacity to defend ourselves independently or committing ourselves more and more closely to support the United States as the United States uh, pursues a policy towards China, which is very likely lead to a US-China conflict, recognising the US-China conflict is not like Iraq or Afghanistan or even Vietnam or Korea. It's World War Three. I mean, this would be the first war between major powers since 1945 and the first major war ever between nuclear powers. So the idea that Australia, like America, seems to contemplate so complacently the idea that we might find ourselves drawn into that kind of war seems to me pretty weird. Now, the reason why we haven't taken these ideas up, why we haven't had the debate we need to be having about both the specific defence questions and the broader strategic questions, is that neither side of politics wants to touch it. Neither side of Australian politics is willing to acknowledge that hanging on to America's coattails is not going to work for us in the new Asia in which America has not, does no longer have the economic or military preponderance to remain the dominant power. I mean, that's the fundamental driver of this debate needs to be an acknowledgement that the era of American military and economic preponderance has passed. Well, now, that's not something I like. I much prefer that it continue, but that's the reality. Well, yeah, we, we just don't know. I mean, these are all don't know questions and they're sort of speculative questions. Actually, actually no, Geraldine, we, that's one thing we do know. We do know that China now has, on the most relevant measure, a bigger economy than America's. And that's, that's the most but important... But not a bigger military, factor. but not a bigger... No, 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 we know that too, Geraldine. It's not that, not that America has a bigger military, that China has a bigger military, but in Asia... In the Western Pacific, in, in a maritime conflict between America and China, America no longer has the capacity to win. The other thing we know is that in the, uh, on an issue like Taiwan or the broader issue as to which is the dominant power in Asia, in the long run, China cares more than America. It has the, it has the advantage in the balance of resolve. So I think, actually, that's one of the things we really do know. All right. China holds a lot of cards. Now, look, just yes, in, the, in a couple of minutes remaining, I, know, I just wonder, how are we going to discuss this? It, because, I mean, the deal's been done. Um, and, uh, in fact, the Labor Party, the government, is wrapping it in jobs as well as security, uh, whether or not the, the Americans are going to talk about it like that. So, I mean, how do you see this playing out, James? Looking again at your sweep of history and your knowledge of it, these sorts of debates in Australia, how do you see it? 
Oh, well, I think it's connected. Um, I think it's connected intimately to what Hugh just said about the way in which Australia looks at the world and has done for so long, and the difficulty at kind of wrenching, wrenching sort of the Australian worldview from some pretty deeply embedded sort of moorings. I mean. If you were to look at the last 25 years, I mean, I see this announcement uh, last Tuesday, I see it as kind of a, a continuum from the mid-1990s when John Howard came to office and wanted to um, reinvigorate the American alliance. He believed, curiously, that the Hawke and Keating governments had left it to wither on the vine. And from then, you've seen a, a bipartisan succession of decisions, um, most clearly in the uh, decision by Julia Gillard to base US Marines in northern Australia a bipartisan sort of consensus that has led to basically the erosion in, in many ways of Australian sovereignty in terms of the US alliance and the loss of, of any kind of self-reliance both within and without the alliance. This is just not a pattern of thinking that appears to um, resonate in, in official circles anymore. Um, you know, the, the, they are so joined at the hip and they are fed on the drip of the alliance and there's a lot of good things about the alliance in terms of intelligence sharing and access to defence material. But I think, um, you know, I, I think the Labor Party in particular uh, have been so running scared and so paranoid and long memories from the Cold War and the debate over the Iraq War as well where they were put on the back foot on national security and in terms of loyalty to the alliance that they do not want they do not want any crack of daylight between them and the opposition on this and they do not want to be seen as weak on either of those factors so that creates an atmosphere in which it is very difficult to sort of tilt at some of these kind of foundational pillars if you like but Hugh's right. I think there are new circumstances. It requires fresh thinking, and uh, all that all that uh, we can do is keep trying to attack the, keep trying to question the conventional wisdom, and and raise new questions about what kind of capabilities would provide for the defence of Australia, right. and go from there. And final word to you, Hugh White. Yeah, look, I think uh, I agree very much with what what James has said. I just make this point. For us to rethink uh, our relationship with the United States and our place in Asia and the place of the fundamental changes that have taken place, we do need to reimagine what kind of country we are. You know, how we approach the world around us is very much framed by the way we see ourselves. And that's a, that's a tough thing. But actually, Australia has done this repeatedly in the past. I mean, in the, between the mid-60s and the mid-70s, we took a good hard look at ourselves and said, white Australia is a really dumb idea. And it required a fundamental reimagining of the kind of country we are for us to step away from white Australia. Likewise, you know, in the, in, um, in the, the last decades of the, of the 19th century, we took a hard look at ourselves and said, let's, let's amalgamate, let's federate, let's become a single country. We had to completely rethink the way we saw ourselves. So this is, this is, a, a, this is a, the scale of rethinking we require because it's worth bearing in mind that the rise of China is the most profound change in Australia's international setting since European settlement of this continent. And so, of course, we're going to have to rethink ourselves to, to, to adjust to what that means. And the problem we have is that everyone wants to keep doing exactly what we've done in the past because it's been very comfortable. But the difficult thing for you is maybe people are comfortable with the alliance. Maybe they don't want to do that rethinking here. Well, well but, but Geraldine, that's because they don't see where it's leading. They don't see that AUKUS is not just about buying submarines, it's about committing ourselves to support the United States in a war with China, which the United States cannot win and which, the, and which is highly likely to become a nuclear war. If Australians understood that, and Penny Wong, to her credit, is nudging in that direction by describing such a war as catastrophic, 
then mm. they'd have a very different yeah. view of they might have a very different view of where we're heading. All right. Well, look, that's just the start of, of many discussions. <laughs> I know we're going to have. Look, thank you both very much indeed for joining us today. It's a great pleasure. Thanks, thank you. Jordan. James Curran, his book is um, uh, Australia's latest book, Australia's China Odyssey from Euphoria to Fear, UNSW Press, and Professor Hugh White, his quarterly essay is Without America, Australia in the New Asia. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.